house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. I'd like to offer you the position of co-host of Daybreak. After the career that I've had. <laughs> Is he going to cook? Is he going to do fashion segments and gossip? Not my thing. You happen to be a pretentious, fatuous idiot. A fatuous idiot who makes three times what you make. So now is an excellent time for you to take up drinking. What's going on now? Mike is offended by a word in the next story. It's about Easter chicks. I'm not saying the word fluffy. Interesting, Jerry hired you. No polish, those bangs. <laughs> I don't have standards. Sure you do. When you got your pep smear on air, you wore a silk robe. Okay! Classy touch. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's probably more interested in being friends with your sister than in your marriage proposal. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hi guys! They don't know how full of nonsense we are this morning. How many? This has been our fifth start. We have gone through. We are full of beans. Margin call, the goldfinch. What else have we talked about this morning? It's been a lot. It's been a lot going on, and you know, whatever. I'm in a mood. Let's say that I'm in. My head's in a weird space, and we're just going to accept it. Um, you could say we were just pitching stories to each other, running through the program of what our show or our morning show, if people listen to us in the morning. That's be. true. A proof of concept. Oh, my God. Somebody hire us for a morning show. Actually, that would be my worst nightmare. Do you know how early those people have to get up? That's my whole thing about... I've talked about the view on this podcast before, right? About how, like, my... that The, the work ethic... I mean, whatever, not to impugn those, you know... Four fantastic women, and then Megan McCain as well. Um, but that Whoopi Goldberg, especially when they were talking to Oprah Winfrey about Oprah, is just like, I'm in it for, and I'm out at whatever. And then <laughs> I think Whoopi was just like, I'm in at 10.30, and I'm gone at 12.30. Like, it's very much just like, <laughs> clock <laughs> in, clock out. And I'm like, yeah, that's the ideal. That's what I want. Whoopi can um, do what she wants. Yeah. Anyway, Chris mentioned it a little bit, but we are going to be talking about... Morning Glory today, the 2010... The, uh, <laughs> the 2010 vessel for Natasha Bedingfield song. Basically, yes. Yes. It's, you know, meant to be kind of a Rachel McAdams vehicle, but also a Harrison Ford comeback uh, vessel, and, you know, written by Aline Brush McKenna, who we will talk about because I think, like, she's maybe the most interesting aspect of this but uh, it was a step outside of genre i mean we don't have to fully get into this but it was like a step outside of genre for bad robot and jj abrams it was supposed oh, to be like I their totally first made note romantic about that. comedy for that it's it's the fourth bad robot movie ever right and so the first three like joyride happened in 2001 and then nothing happened for another like eight years whatever but then it was like um cloverfield Wait, what was it? It was... It was all science fiction, basically. Right, but it was, like, it's basically... Bad Robot has only ever done, like, four types of things, and it's, like, Mission Impossible movies, 
um, J.J. Abrams directed films, uh, Star Trek movies. Okay, so the first four, it was Joyride, Cloverfield, as I said, the first Star Trek, the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek from 2009, and then the next year was Morning Glory. So this was the fourth feature film to be made under Bad Robot. Now, of course, Bad Robot had been a TV thing for a while. If anybody had watched Alias or Lost, they would be very familiar with the uh, the little uh, scamp of a, of a robot running through those fields in the Bad Robot logo. Bad Robot! But their film stuff didn't really kick in until Cloverfield. Cloverfield's one of, we're not going to ever really get a chance to talk about Cloverfield on this podcast because that is not a type of movie that gets Oscar buzz. And also... There, it opened in January. Well, and it was a surprise. That was the whole idea. The whole thing about Cloverfield that I thought was so cool was it managed to surprise audiences in a way that I didn't think was possible, which was, hey, we've been making this movie you didn't know we've been making. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the trailer was in theaters, and everybody was like, what? What's happening? Like, And it's a great trailer. It's a very catchy trailer. That that shot of the the head of the Statue of Liberty sort of like rolling down that street in um in Tribeca or whatever the hell like wherever the hell that apartment was. Yeah, like the logistics of a the movie, but the trailer as well make absolutely no sense. Absolutely, but in a way, I I almost prefer that because it's just like, oh, okay, this is the Cloverfield version of where of how long it takes to get to Columbus Circle. (laughs) <laughs> Which is like cool, great. I love it. Cloverfield's one of my like honestly, I love that movie. I genuinely love that movie, and I love the. I love Ten Cloverfield Lane. I also love that movie. I love both of them. I don't love the Cloverfield Paradox because, woof. I have not seen it. Oh boy, you are fine. It is not a good. The movie. Cloverfield Monster is maybe the most terrifying thing on cinema screens in the past, you know, decade. Yeah. Yeah, it's true, because it's basically like, what it's if... It's older than a decade, but yeah, that that monster. It's like, what if the, like, ticks that, like, burrowed into the, like, bottom of the ocean floor became, like, giant and, like, I don't know, stomped all over you? It's, it's What if the crazy. skeleton of a shrimp plus yeah. maybe another four legs? Yeah. Did you ever see that, like, chart that somebody made for... Uh, for the internet where it's just like the relative sizes of like human being t-rex cloverfield monster like i'm not gonna do that to myself cloverfield monster is so huge anyway oh i think godzilla was on that as well for some reason love cloverfield can't get interested in godzilla i don't know what it is maybe it's you know maybe which godzilla any godzilla oh really see i loved the gareth edwards one Oh, I mean, I like that movie. I think that's a wonderful movie, but, like, I can't get into Godzilla as, like, a concept. Oh, okay. Like, I won't be interested in a new Godzilla movie just because it's a Godzilla movie. I You have to, like, you have to do what Gareth Edwards does, which is just, like, pretty colors. And, like, that's basically <laughs> Elizabeth Olsen. Like, yeah. Ennui. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it. Oh, my God. Just, like, Juliette Binoche. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yep. that Juliette Pinoche did that movie just so she could say that she did a franchise movie before doing Clouds of Sils Maria. Honestly, yes, it was probably like character building. No, I mean, I think she said that in an interview recently. Wait, did she really? She like, I, yeah, I did that movie so that I would have like an understanding of what that means to be an actor that does those kind of movies. She's just better than us. I'm just gonna say it. God, Juliette Pinoche. She's better than better us. Better than us. All right. Anyway, 
This is all an intro to say we're going to be talking about Morning Glory, the 2010 film directed by Roger Michel. We have uh, previously talked about Roger Michel on this had Oscar buzz when we did our episode on Hyde Park on Hudson. He's back, back, back again with Morning Glory, written by, as I mentioned, Aline Broch McKenna, who is most notable. If you've heard her name recently, it's probably for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She was the co-writer and showrunner of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She is great, and I love her, and we'll get into it. Starring Rachel McAdams, Harrison Ford, Diane Keaton, Patrick Wilson, Jeff Goldblum, and others, it premiered on November 10th, 2010, after having been moved from a initial spring 2010 release date. And it's a movie I generally... I, I think when I think about Morning Glory or when I talk about Morning Glory, it's a better movie in my head than it ever is when I actually watch it. This was my first time watching it, and... I had, like, a concept of what this movie would be. And I know that this movie has its loud fans, mostly gays on the internet. (laughs) Um, And the first half hour of this movie is really rough. It takes a minute for Rachel McAdams' character to set in and to, like, be less of a grating caricature of, like, look at this optimistic person with feelings. Like, there's the constant joke of, are you going to sing whenever she says something earnest? Here's what I will say. Once it actually settles in. And it takes... And I think the settling in is important. I think the filmmaking is very um, scattershot in its first 30 minutes. I don't think it knows quite what tack to take on her. I don't think it ever really, like settles in with her or like hunker downs with hunkers down with her hunkers down it has a hard time to like get into the plot of the movie well just like a long setup the 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 opening title credits for okay so again we mentioned bad robot production so jj abrams is a producer on this movie jj abrams what's he known for in all of his shows like people always make fun of him for lens flares he loves a lens flare wherever he is whatever he's working on lens flares the opening credits for this film every time they show like art direction by whoever or like fifth lead Jeff Goldblum or whatever there is a lens flare that accompanies the text on screen of and it's supposed to be like morning show like because the whole thing is about like creating a morning show but it's literally just like you put lens flares on every single fucking credit in this movie you maniac like I don't (laughs) understand but like it's all very like herky-jerky and choppy and you don't really stick with Rachel McAdams' character. Remind me what her name is so I can Becky. Becky, right. Becky Fuller. But, like, we don't get to know this person at all for, like, a good 30 to 40 minutes of this movie, and it makes it... We want to root for her because it's Rachel McAdams. Like, I do. Like, I love Rachel McAdams. And I think the casting of this movie is actually really perfect. And... But it doesn't give us a whole lot to grab onto like the whole thing with with her you know we get that scene with her and her mom where she's just like my dream is to um be a producer of the today show and her mom's like maybe it's time to give up on dreams you're in your 20s after all and it's like nothing about this scene makes sense except for that her mom is played by patty darvinville who is one of the like every time she's i so rarely get to see her on screen and every time i do i sort of brighten up did you watch my so-called life uh yes so she was rayanne's mom on my so-called life Yes. But she also is like, have you, do you know her like story, like that actress's like whole like deal? No, tell us. She used to. So Patty Darvinville is like a former like Andy Warhol factory girl, essentially. And before that, oh. she had been um, 
Cat Stevens's sort of like girlfriend, Lady Darbenville. Exactly, exactly. So she's Lady Darbenville. So um, really interesting sort of story, and she's like a very interesting screen presence. She's in this movie for literally one scene, but I'm just like, oh, it's Ryan's mom because two course, scenes because at the end she like right, has the clipping, right, and smiles yes. in in pride at her daughter. That was a yes. nice little moment. Um, in one of this movie's many montages, which is another sort of thing that like. I get that it was following in the very successful footsteps of The Devil Wears Prada, which was Aline Brosh McKenna's previous uh, screenwriting credit. And that movie did so well with so many montages. And I think Morning Glory tried to follow in those footsteps a little bit. But I think in this movie, they're a little distancing. And I think in Devil Wears Prada, having a healthy distance from Miranda Priestly is part of what the movie's about. Mm-hmm. Managing that distance and, you know, contracting it and expanding it and that kind of thing. Whereas in this movie, I'm just like, I don't think I ever really know what Diane Keaton's character is all about. Ever. No, I mean, like, the movie's kind of weirdly disinterested in Diane Keaton. Yeah. To the point that it's like, how did they finagle getting Diane Keaton for this role that basically is just kind of a lunatic? But you never really... There's no she never other has level a moment where she's a person. Right. It's crazy. No, this movie is very, very much about Rachel McAdams, and then uh, at some point it becomes about Rachel McAdams and Harrison Ford. It's never really even only about Harrison Ford. Like, it's it's mostly, like, he gets kind of three-quarters of a character, and Rachel McAdams gets a whole character, and then Diane just gets nothing. Yeah. Patrick Wilson also kind of gets nothing. In, in a sexual politics way, it's almost satisfying in that, like, Patrick Wilson is just, like, the girlfriend in this movie. Oh, totally. And Harrison Ford is just sort of like... That That Harrison Ford wasn't... didn't take over this movie is a little satisfying on a sexual politics level, but on another level, it's like, maybe it's a better movie if Harrison Ford gives more of a shit. Yeah, I mean, but you also have Jeff Goldblum playing kind of a villain. Yes. A little bit, and like, he is even a little bit more drawn than maybe... Like Diane Keaton. Is. Here's a thought I had during the movie, and 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 strike it down if you don't think it's a good one. This is a better movie if Jeff Goldblum and John Pankow's characters switch actors. John Pankow, mm. the uh, the producer, her sort of right hand man on the morning show. Maybe. I think it would be interesting to watch Goldblum sort of like be her, you know, confidant on the show, and like get a get a little bit more of him in the movie because like he does the thing. I feel like we've really sort of calcified Jeff Goldblum recently between this. I mean, this yeah, was, this was a weird watch because ago. Jeff Goldblum, it, like that calcification you're talking about. I'm like, wait a minute. Jeff Goldblum isn't like in bright colors. Right. Doesn't have the shock yeah, of yeah. silver hair. Yeah. Isn't like playing into his own persona and like is sexy in the way that Jeff Goldblum is sexy, but not Jeff Goldblum playing sexy. But you it's still, I do, but it's still this movie that's very much trading on just like that we're going to be so dazzled by the Jeff Goldblum of it all that we're going to like accept this character who's not very much more than a disapproving obstacle for Becky yeah. in this movie. I'm sure right? Jeff Goldblum made that way more interesting than it was on the page. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Because that could have been a very cliche. Anyway, we're getting that you have like Dennis O'Hare playing. Yeah, we're getting sort of down farther down into the rabbit hole of the plot of this movie. 
um, than I thought we would at the beginning. But why don't we put the brakes on that for a second and let you catch our listeners up on the entire plot as a whole in the span of 60 seconds, as we are wont to do on the show. All right. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. You flex those muscles while I pull up my phone timer. Fancy dancy timer. All right. So the plot of Roger Michel's Morning Glory in 60 seconds. Chris, are you ready? I am ready. Go. All right. As we mentioned, uh, Rachel McAdams plays Becky. She's always dreamed of being a Today Show producer. She initially gets fired from her local news show uh, because they are terrible. um, And she somehow finagles her way into um, Daybreak, which is a show that has had 14 EPs in 11 years, I believe Diane Keaton says. So it's like she has this shitty job that, like, no one expects her to have for a very long time. She immediately, like takes control by firing one of the co-hosts that's played by Ty Burrell because he's disgusting and um, gross. Um, And then through like contract loopholes, she basically uh, shoves Mike Pomeroy, played by Harrison Ford, into the show. He's a very, very serious journalist. He only likes to do serious stories. He's looking down on the show the whole time and is a general asshole about just doing his job. Ten seconds. Um, Anyway, like Jeff Goldblum, like... says that they're going to cancel the show if she doesn't get the ratings high enough and she starts doing like grabby viral things to get the ratings up and then she does and she wins and Mike Pomeroy breaks a good story. He does. He breaks a what a yeah. story about uh, it's a racketeering charge for the governor of New York. Which I imagine I'm trying to place this into the timeline of Elliot Spitzer, but that seems to have been the uh the guiding the guiding principle of that little yeah. twist, right? Also, like, to underline what we were saying about Diane Keaton, I didn't even mention her in that 60-second plot description because she really has no plot function other than to be, like, a foil to Mike Pomeroy. And what's crazy is... She will do whatever stupid story because she seems to actually like her job, even though it's, like, a shithole. Well, there's there's a real potential for her to be an interesting character because she's been the woman who's been at this job the whole time. This show gets no respect... And as a result, she, as a TV personality, gets no respect. She does the whole, like, she at one point, like, while the show is being successful, she, like, kisses the strange little, like, animals when the animal person brings them onto the the show. She has this weird... Can we talk about the way she kisses that frog in that scene? Like, yeah, like, she's trying not to kiss it, but really she's just inhaling it. She, like, open mouth kisses this frog, and as a result, like, almost, like, puts its entire head in her mouth. Which makes you respect Diane Keaton quite a bit, because, like, she clearly just showed up to this movie and was just wanting to have a good time and was willing to do whatever to make us have a good time. She does that, and then she turns to the animal guy, and she's like, "That that was wrong, wasn't it? And it was just like, and it almost sort of felt like an ad lib. But it feels like... That's a character who could have had some layers to her, right? Which, like, all of a sudden this, like, you know, male respected journalist comes to her show and he's the one who's bringing legitimacy. And what does she feel about that? How does she feel about this producer coming to the show and, like, livening her show up? But she, you know, she gets the show that maybe the success that she's wanted, but she has to give up half of it to this guy. And what's her... The fact that, like, during the closing montage, we get the shot of her... And Harrison Ford, like, ducking into a dressing room together? Which, to me, seemed like they were actually... He was willing to finally work with her because he was refusing Did to you, go okay. into, like... He, That's a good point. I sort of took it as this, There's this whole like, scene where he's like, no, we're going to meet in my dressing room. And you're she's right. like, no, he can meet here as, like, a, you know, trying to 
also establish her worth and dominance. But that's a better I'm interpretation. The of shot that. correctly, it looks like it's her dressing room. Yeah. So like that's like a easy way at the end of the movie to say, look, he has some personal growth because it really like accelerates that character arc in the last maybe five minutes of the movie. Because I thought they were trying to be like, and now they're like, they're getting along so well that they're like doing it. And I'm just like, oh. Um, I I mean, maybe I missed that. No, Um, I think you're actually right because you're right about the whole like power politics of whose dressing room gets to be the meeting place. So like that works. You're right to say that her character though feels like a real missed opportunity. And I think the, my issue with this movie is there's a lot of missed opportunities that could have made the movie more satisfying. Yes. Like I wanted a scene where she was able to say like, I love my job. This is why I work hard or like, you know, I have a job to do something like that. That says why she is still there and why she puts up with a lot of this. Um, but also, like, the Mike Pomeroy character, it's really frustrating. The movie kind of dances around um, the fact that it's like you, this this job is putting you in people's homes and you're a part of people's daily lives. You start off with it. And he is just a stick in the mud the whole time, which is like putting it lightly because he's outright combative and yeah. over it in every way. And you really want him to embrace... I mean, he does in the end because he, like, does a cooking segment. But nobody ever says the words to him, like, you can actually do what you want to do and give some type of serious news. But at the same time, like, embrace the fact that, like, this means something to people, I guess, that you are in their homes so intimately with this program. I almost wanted his character and Patrick Wilson's character to have a scene together. Because Patrick Wilson's character during the course of the movie reveals that he had worked with Mike Pomeroy and had been treated pretty poorly by him, right? And now views him as, like, the third worst person in the world. And I almost wanted a scene not to, like, to give that character closure, but to just have him be like, look, you treat people very badly, and Mm -hmm. this person, you know, Becky, is trying to do something with the show that you're on and with your career, and you know, maybe realize that. Like, maybe, I don't know. Like, there's a lot and of see, ways see, I wanted that from Diane Keaton, almost, because yeah. it's like, it's two birds, one stone. If she gets to put him in his place and, like, have that conversation with him, and they're already fighting the whole movie, so I don't know why that didn't work its way into their arguments, Yeah, I guess. There's an, uh, there's an interesting through line when you mentioned that you wanted to have a scene where Rachel McAdams' character is just like, look, this is the job that I've chosen, and I'm damn good at it. Like, that's... Mm-hmm. And there's a big part of that in The Devil Wears Prada as well, which was, I wanted at some point the movie to acknowledge that Anne Hathaway getting good at her job was a triumph in and of itself, no matter what mm-hmm. she was working her way towards, no matter what industry she was in. And I always felt like the movie gave a little bit too much credence to that viewpoint that was expressed by most, you know, most prominently by her boyfriend, which was, you know, why are you putting your work into this sort of bad industry, right? Mm -hmm. And the movie undercuts that notion in certain ways with making the Stanley Tucci character such a good person and, you know, sticking up for the fashion industry in his way and sort of the Cerulean speech is sort of like that too. Um, Mm -hmm. But it never takes that moment of Anne Hathaway being like, look, I got good at this job and it was a fucking hard job to get good at. And I am going to demand some sort of 
recognition for that and take some pride in that. And ultimately what it does is have her reject that. And it's the one thing about the movie that I really sort of hate beyond the fact that like she even entertains having a meal with her boyfriend at the end of the movie. Anyway, I don't think they end up getting back together. I don't think it's going towards that way, but like I wanted, I wanted her rejection of Miranda's, way of treating people to not be the same thing as her rejection of all of the work she had put into becoming really good at her job. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And, like, I don't think that's necessarily a problem with Morning Glory because I do think that it shows that Becky is good at her job. It's just, like, when she starts being, like, having success, it's so accelerated and it happens so fast that you can't really... Like the movie just kind of makes it all happen really fast in the third act, and it doesn't don't really let get you to like see her enjoying being good at her job. The the thing about again, I'm I it's I keep comparing it to Double Wears Prada both because it seems like that's the vibe it was going for, and obviously the Aline Brosh McKenna connection. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Double Wears Prada is it kept it went from like memorable scene to memorable scene and like everything that happened there's the scene where she delivers the book to the house there's the scene where she has to get um the harry potter manuscript there's the scene there's the scene where um emily gets sick and she has to fill in at the party and like every single progression in that movie comes via these sort of like very well-drawn memorable scenes Mm -hmm. and morning glory feels like it knows where we need to get to and it doesn't take enough time making the getting there a series of uh, like scenes we enjoy watching. Or singular events, too. It's just kind of this like mishmash until it gets there. It's like a lot of things in the air at once. I also think part of the, if we're comparing it to Devil Wears Prada, the difference here is that those the characters in Devil Wears Prada always feel like real people, and this movie they maybe do not. Yeah, I or think if that's they do, true. they do on a performance level, but not in like a writing right. detail type. Of Harrison thing. Ford's character is supposed to be a, you know, combo of Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, sort of. You know, he has to be Charlie Rose. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I feel like I think it's Charlie Rose because Charlie Rose was this around the time that he joined the CBS Morning Show. Oh, that's interesting. That's a good point. Maybe. And, like, I kept thinking about Charlie Rose this whole time because Charlie Rose is the one that's had... It's definitely... I wonder how this movie would be responded to or if this movie would dive into it deeper, the type of treatment that especially women in this industry receive. Because it's definitely... uh, Having not seen it when it first came out, it's more interesting to watch now that we're having these conversations than it might have been at the time, I think. Because I exclusively thought about Charlie Rose every time that Mike Pomeroy was horrible. That makes sense. I think my, I think I jumped to rather because she kept talking about how he was like America's most beloved newsman. And like, that certainly was never Charlie Rose's thing. And, mm-hmm. um, and that in a way that like Diane Keaton's character made me think of Barbara Walters because she was like, and Barbara Walters never came at it from like, the Miss Arizona sort of, like, end of things. But she was also Mm -hmm. another, like, respected uh, newswoman who then became a morning show personality and... or a daytime personality, in this case, with The View. And kind of, you know, her reputation 
change there. But I think that's that's less of a one to one with her. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, you know a lot any you know any woman who's done morning show stuff, but. I think it's a lot of mishmash. I think it's a. I think it's. There's no real one to one. Although the the Charlie Rose thing is interesting, but the your point about it being more interesting from a now perspective, I think dovetails into part of the reason why it had buzz in the first place, and also part of the reason why critics seem to be very uh, disappointed by it. Was I think there was a sense that like this could be broadcast news for morning television. Mm-hmm. Like the morning news thing. Like at some point, and which I think, all due respect to Roger Michel, I don't know why people expected that from Roger Michel. Well, and I think Roger Michel sort of came onto this movie sort of late. I think this is less of a Roger Michel movie than other movies he's made. Definitely. Um, we can talk about him a little bit, especially because I did see his latest movie at Toronto, and I really liked it. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit. But um, I think there's a sense of. It's interesting. My mom, my mom watches, or at least used to watch, a lot of the morning news shows. She was a big Today Show person, and I think at some point she got kind of disillusioned by the infotainment revolution in morning show that it really, really like bent so heavily towards mm-hmm. infotainment and away from like any kind of. Because I think at you know there was there used to be at least this sense that. At least the morning shows, you had, you know, Brian Gumbel and Katie Couric and even, like, Joan London on Good Morning America or, like, Diane Sawyer had done morning show stuff. And there was a sense for a while that they were trying to keep a balance between we're going to do news, but we're also going to do fun stuff. And I think at some point, all of the networks were just like, nope, mostly fun stuff. And I think there's a strain of people who remember when morning TV used to have more of that balance that mm-hmm. feels like there's a story here in how this was sort of a beachhead on the war between news and entertainment that got lost and maybe wanted Morning Glory to be the broadcast news of that. And I don't think, I think it, this movie was just never going to be that from its inception. And maybe that put unfair expectations on the movie, except I still don't think it's a, think it's a successful movie anyway. So I don't feel like this is a movie that got a raw deal. No, but, like, I can't, hmm. I mean, I guess it's more, like, softball broadcast news. Uh, it, it, the thing is, it really kind of avoids having any kind of hard line on any of those things yeah. and hard line on those people, which is more like it's not as interesting to me watching it post Charlie Rose as it would be if this movie was just made post Charlie Rose because I think it's kind of sidestepping some of those serious questions in a way. Well, you, but it's like these people are assholes, but maybe there's I don't know. I don't think it says that they have a point necessarily. No, but I think you I have Harrison Ford's character who so often brings up his anger at the fact that there's no news done in morning news, right? Mm-hmm. And that it used to be this way, and that like he has this great moment of triumph, and that he does bring the most hard news to this morning show that it's had in years, right? Which is the mm-hmm. governor um, being led away in scandal and whatnot. And it seems like it walks us up to the door of wanting to say something about that and whether, you know, we should be striving for something that has more of this balance. But his his disdain for everything else that comes with it sort of feels, if not explicitly gendered, then at least, like, 
disdainful of Becky and um, Diane Keaton's character as being like very willfully complicit in turning this genre into something insubstantial. Yeah, and I mean, especially that was one of the more frustrating character beats because he he breaks this story and he keeps it a secret. He lies to Becky that it's some other story. Yeah. When it's like, you could have just worked with your producer and had a pot, you know, like... Also, I guess like what I wanted was the movie was for Becky to be able to say in a really substantive way, you could have told me this and we could have worked. We could have done this together. Right. Exactly. Like it feels very much like the they never create like a show that ever is people not working on an island. Like everybody is their own island on the show. And like you you want it just in satisfying movie terms for that. To, for it to grow past that. Also, can we talk about the Mike Pomeroy on-camera voice? Which, he, I don't understand how somebody with that delivery got to be so beloved and popular. Because it's, yeah. it's, I like, what is that delivery? It's very, like, clenched and It's Harrison whispered. Ford. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what he's doing. He's going for something, and I don't know what it is. And it all it adds up to is like a very not compelling TV presence that I can't imagine ever caught on. And it only really works in the movie in the part where he's making the frittata because it's so ridiculous that he's making the frittata. Like it really proves Becky's instinct correct, which is mm-hmm. watching this respected newsman be so slightly awkward in a cooking segment is irresistible to watch. And like that's totally <laughs> true. I've been making frittata for about 20 years now, ever since I was taught how to on a naked weekend with a beautiful Italian movie star who shall, of course, remain nameless. Occasionally, I make them at home, but only for people that I, people I really care about. (laughs) Now, the key to a great frittata is a very hot pan because that my friends is what makes it fluffy and it's a but it's, we're still like left to infer that like the movie I don't know but also that scene is filmed so poorly and that like we keep getting the shot of him doing the frittata like from behind the bank of cameras that are filming him, there's such a distance to that character. And we don't ever get the like sort of close up shot on him having an emotional moment trying to connect with her through the TV screen, right? Where mm-hmm. he's sort of reaching out to her and he's saying, Look, I'm doing the thing that you, you know, were mad that I wouldn't do. And I'm, I said, you know, he said donuts and he said fluffy and all those sort of things, those like messages just to her. And there's such a distance in the filmmaking in that scene that I found it so frustrating. Also, Well, there's a difference in the storytelling, too, because him doing that is not an apology or, like, an admission that he is willing... I mean, I guess it's an admission that he's willing to grow or, like, work with the team. But it doesn't... I don't know. It doesn't... It's not as satisfying as it probably should be. But I wonder if it's filmed a little more warmly, if it would have been. Also, this is a nitpick, and this isn't, like you know, a reason why the movie's bad, but it's insane that she goes to interview at the Today Show at Rockefeller Center, and there's a bank of TVs that are showing all the other networks' morning shows. 
First of all, <laughs> fuck no. I'm sorry. There is no TV in that place that is not showing NBC. Like, w- yeah. I don't understand. That the whole plot of the movie is depends on the fact that she, at this interview, sees her own network? No. No. Wouldn't ever happen. Yeah, that probably doesn't make sense. Can we end the nitpicking at least to say that I had a really good time with this movie? Did you? Okay, I'm glad. I kind of did. So, like, I get the people that really love this movie. I find this movie more frustrating than fun, and yet, again, I'm a day removed from watching it again, and I've seen it maybe two or three times now. And a day removed from it, I'm just like, oh, morning glory. And I'm like, wait a second, no, you just saw it, and we're disappointed by it. Like, what the fuck is going on? But it has this (laughs) thing where, like, I think the idea of it is so appealing. The idea of a movie where Rachel McAdams is a morning news producer, and... Harrison Ford and Diane Keaton are the on-air talent on that new show is so appealing. And that's why... Well, and maybe this is where we can pivot to talking about the broadcast news of it all a little bit, because I think one of the things, and that maybe it's me trying to not hold this against this movie, but there's something about Morning Glory where it's like the absolute best version of what this movie could be is absolutely in your head, so very clear that it's hard not to hold it against this movie when it's when it is not that thing. I think that's exactly that's that's a, good a lot way of, of putting stuff. it. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's it you know exactly how this movie in the best version of it will play, what will satisfy you, what will charm you, yeah. and it doesn't always hit those things. Um So let's talk and then, about of course there's broadcast news. Yes. I think and I think that's what I think that's just a thing that was sort of hung around this movie that it just shows up in a lot of the reviews. But I think if we talk about why this movie had Oscar buzz to begin with, I think beyond just the concept of it and beyond the fact that, like, oh, The Devil Wears Prada was able to do it four years ago, I think more so than anything, this was during the when's it going to happen for Rachel McAdams sort of Mm -hmm. part of her career, which actually didn't last very long. Because if you look, like, her initial jump up in 04 and 05, where she does, in quick succession... Mean Girls, The Notebook, Wedding Crashers, Red Eye, Family Stone. Like, that's all within a year and a half of each other, basically. Mean Girls was spring 04. And they all made money. And Family Stone was, like, late fall 05, right? So, like, it's mm-hmm. a year and a half. And they all made money. Like And, like, you know, even something like Red Eye, which was small, but, like, it was very good. And mm-hmm. all of those movies, to one degree or another, are very watchable. And she does so well in all of them. And you're just like, all right. Rachel McAdams, next big thing. And so then, if you're, you know, an Oscar obsessive like I am, like a lot of people are, then it becomes just like, okay, now when, what's what's the Oscar play for her? What's, what's next? What's on the horizon? And so everything that comes up from there becomes seen through that lens. And the thing with her, at least in her feature film career, is she there was like a year and a half after that first jump, that first sort of spate of movies where she wasn't in anything, before she comes back with mm-hmm. something small like The Lucky Ones or... Or she was doing genre movies like, um, when was The Time Traveler's Wife? Well, the thing with The Time Traveler's Wife was it released in '09. it looks like, but like it was supposed to come out at least a year before that. Right. right? So, like, it's, that was probably the movie, that was the movie that I think a lot of people were, we should do that movie at some point, because there was a lot of early Oscar attention about just like, oh, no, this is going to be 
her big, you know, best actress campaign. And popular book, right? It was a very popular book, I believe. I think you're right. And then the lucky ones was, I think, a Sundance movie. Maybe that went nowhere. And no, it, it it was a TIFF movie first of all, but it went. It was one of those things where it's just like maybe the indie route will be what gets her her first nomination, and she's and what it ended up being was that she had to be in a Best Picture front runner, right? Because by the time Spotlight happens, like people almost, I remember early in that season, she was kind of discounted among that. Yeah, ensemble for a potential Oscar nomination because they thought that the Rachel McAdams ship had sailed. Exactly, and like she has one of the more subdued performances in that movie. Even though I think she's really, really great in it. Um, in Spotlight, yes. Oh yeah, she's wonderful. Like fully deserves that nomination. But you're right. In that. Absolutely. And I think Morning Glory was a big part of one of those big sort of Rachel McAdams tent poles that didn't happen. That. Mm-hmm led to that idea that like oh yeah the Rachel we tried the Rachel McAdams thing with you know Oscar stuff and it didn't happen because it just you know one after another she was in these movies and it was either that the movie didn't do well or like Morning Glory or like Time Traveler's Wife or like um what was the Malick movie she was in To the Wonder To the Wonder well, Does she even speak in that movie? Well, that's the other that's the other half of it is she's in all of these movies where she just doesn't have a substantial role. Like State of Play is mm-hmm. fun, but like she is part of an ensemble and she's not really the most she's sort of a spotlight kind of a role in State of Play, right? right. And um like a most wanted man, I feel like she has a very similar kind of a deal with that or yeah, where she's like not in the second half of the movie. Yeah. And, like, Midnight in Paris, she plays the most offensively written horrible woman character. Like, that is, like, Woody Allen at his most women-hating is his writing of that character in that movie. Mm -hmm. She's, like, she's so much like the girl in the Sherlock Holmes movies. I love her in About Time, but I know a past guest, Katie Rich, and I have argued about whether she has enough to do in that movie, whether that movie is is so slanted towards the Donald Gleason character that mm-hmm. that it that it wastes almost Rachel McAdams and like I don't think I Kate is entirely wrong. You've never seen About Time? No. Oh, Chris. I have mentioned it to do an episode uh, multiple times and you've always poo-pooed it. I think it mostly just because I was like, if we do an episode on it, I can see this movie. Maybe I'm a little worried that you're not going to like it, and then we're going to have to stop doing the podcast. Oh, and that okay. Will be you sad. have threatened. You have threatened <laughs> I've, my stance I've, several times. I've threatened to take my love away, reason. and I will continue to do so. Um, you know what? Take what you want. Steal my pride. <laughs> take what you want. I'll knock you down to size. Yes. Um, But yeah, so I feel like I'm glad that we are now back in a moment where we don't have this sort of Oscar failure to hang around Rachel McAdams' neck. I think now we can look at a a movie like Disobedience, which was only a couple years ago. God, she's so good in that movie. She's on quite the hot streak. Her last four movies were Spotlight, Oscar nomination, 
Doctor Strange, which was back to her like thankless role thing, but it made a ton of money, and it's you know that she going to be in Doctor Strange too. I don't know? know. I don't think we I know. I don't think we know much about Doctor Strange two at all, to the point where I don't know if it's been cast. Like I like I fully mm. think you know. It's in like the next two years, so we'll find out. Yeah. Um, she also had Game Night, which I'm less high on Game Night as some people as a movie, but her performance is so exquisite. Game Night is great, and Rachel McAdams is fantastic in Game Night. I love She's so good. Her. Like, I'm very gun averse, like, in terms of like making guns funny or whatever. I agree with you. But like, her singing semi-charmed life <laughs> and singing it into a gun yep is really funny she is uh her and her upcoming movies one of them is her and will ferrell and dan stevens in a eurovision comedy which oh i will nine thousand percent be dying to see that. very very much into that and then the other one is sherlock holmes 3 which like please rescue Oy. our girl from sherlock holmes 3 but like yeah like it's it's a very uh exciting time for her i think she was so good in disobedience she was so good in game night she was so good in spotlight and i don't know as somebody who has loved her since the mean girls days Mm -hmm. i am very very happy with where things have now shaken out for rachel mcadams and i'm I would say it go feels back. Like we're waiting for the one, right? That can be like another like big role that could put her back in Oscar consideration, right? Yeah, like, and I I think her. But her, does it feel like it's happening? Not yet, but I feel like her career is in a place where we're not in danger of losing her. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? She's still getting roles. She's still doing well. She's still impressing people. She's still doing both indies and mainstream stuff. I guess my hesitation is more protective because I feel like her nomination is one that is like not considered as warmly as it should be. And I just want her to get the one again that people love, you know? I feel like by the time that Oscars happened and in the aftermath of it, I feel like people came around to that performance in Spotlight. I think initially there was a lot of like, you know... What does she, you know, what does she have to do in that movie? She doesn't really do enough right. in that movie, and I think people really came around to the virtues of the the humble virtues of that movie. If that doesn't sound too annoying, I mean, I think also of like, there's plenty of nominations, and I'm sure we'll see some this year. That it's just like the right performer in the right movie, and it gets nominated. And I think she's one of the better examples of that in terms of a performance itself. Yeah, I think that's true. But I don't know. Yeah. Morning Glory also, we should mention, was a, a reteaming of Rachel McAdams and Diane Keaton, which again makes me doubly sad that we didn't get more of those two characters in Morning Glory um, opposite each other. And, yeah. you know, either in conflict or in, you know, conspiratorial. I would have loved it if Becky had, like, w- like wrapped up Colleen and her plans to, like, get Mike on board with stuff. And, like, maybe they, mm-hmm. you know, had been a little bit more of a team. Or if Colleen is more of a of an obstacle than show Becky having to like traverse that obstacle. Um, yeah. Cause they had such you almost great don't, chemistry. Like, need the first fit. Like if this movie feels so rushed, like you don't need that like first 15 minutes of the movie. You just yeah. have her showing up at this new job. Absolutely. You don't need to know this whole backstory so that like you can get into 
those type of dynamics of people like oh working together to solve this horrible yeah. man problem. Do we have more to say about Harrison Ford before we talk about why the uh, the movie went down in flames? Harrison Ford is always fascinating to me in terms of Oscar because he only has one nomination. It's for Witness. And in like later career, it feels like anytime he's come up to the plate, people are trying to like graft an Oscar narrative onto him, even for things like Star Wars. Right. And it's like, I don't think he cares. I don't think that his performance in this movie is particularly all that great. No, it's not. And it's it's definitely one of the things that totally could have been so much more than it is. Um, the problem with with this specifically is there were a lot of movies that he sort of like slept walked through, and it was it was less galling because those movies and those roles were less uh, had less potential to them. And I think we talked he, about this during uh, Random Hearts, our Random yeah, Hearts episode. Yeah, exactly. And I think you look at something like Morning Glory, and you're like, man, you could have really made something of this. And the thing is, it does seem like he is trying really hard or it's like he's just hitting the same note really, really hard over and over. I think trying hard on Harrison Ford maybe looks a little different. I think I think he can I think he can flip the switch on that sort of snarling, like, you know, high key pissed off sort of version of himself a lot easier Mm -hmm. than maybe we think. So it's like. That looks like effort, but it's not quite. Maybe I don't know. It's tough to it's tough to like impugn effort, and I sort of feel bad doing that. Like these are actors; they all have worked hard in their careers and whatnot. But it really feels mm-hmm. like this is a switch that Ford flips not uncommonly, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think that's probably fair. Where it's just like get off um, my plane, like that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I'm I'm talking about six days, seven nights when he says to Anne Hage, "Get off my plane." No, I'm kidding. Yeah. What if he did when uh, when he says uh, that to Kristen Scott Thomas when they're dry humping oh my in a God. car in, <laughs> in um random hearts. In random hearts. Yikes. So gross. Yeah. Um He says that to Kylo Ren too. It's just <laughs> the the cinematic universe of Harrison Ford saying, Get off my plane. Ben, get off my plane. It's my Harrison Ford. Yeah. <laughs> He made some real stinkers, though, in the 2000s. Like, we're not even oh, talking man. about, like... Firewall. Firewall, Hollywood Homicide. Um, what was the <laughs> one? Sorry, Cowboys Josh and Arthur. Aliens. And, um, God, there's a lot of bad stuff. Jesus. Maybe he just got in with the whole, like, J.J. Abrams thing. Like, he, like, was wooed by J.J. Abrams. Because that's a bad robot movie, right? What is? Cowboys and Aliens? No, it's not. That's the thing about Bad really? Robot, is I was trying to say, like, it... It's such a distinct brand that it's like you can confuse other movies to be Bad Robot movies, then, I guess. Bad Robot, almost exclusively... Hold on, now I've got to, like, bring this up. Bad Robot Productions, almost exclusively, in terms of feature films, makes A, Cloverfield movies, B, Star Trek movies... The, like since the reboot C Mission Impossible movies or D JJ Abrams movies which I'll count as his Star Wars movies and Super 8 and the only ones that fall outside of that rubric are Morning Glory Joyride which as I said was like a outlier in that it was like 7 years before the next feature film you remember Joyride the John Dahl movie yes. with uh, yes, yes 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 is it Paul Walker and Steve Zahn Lely Sobieski right which is only notable to me because you see Paul Walker's butt in it quite a bit and um yes so 
It's Joyride, Morning Glory, and you know what the third movie that does not fall under those previous rubrics that I mentioned? I could give you a billion guesses and you wouldn't get it. It is Golden Globe nominee Infinitely Polar Bear. Wow. Yeah. Starring Golden Globe nominee Mark Ruffalo and Zoe Saldana from 2015. So those are the only movies that that aren't... Star Trek, Mission Impossible, J.J. Abrams, Cloverfield. Like, that's... I kind of really wish that this was a J.J. Abrams-directed movie. Like, not to just shit on Roger Michelle. No, but you know... I think the Roger Mich- the typical Roger Michelle issues are uh, amped up to, like, 10 in this movie in a way that it's like, if those weren't such a problem, like, the good things about the movie could shine a little it more. It bums me out that we'll only really get a chance to talk about the bad Roger Michel movies on this podcast because the good ones don't really have Oscar buzz, right? Where, like, Notting Hill was never an Oscar movie. It was a summer, you know, moneymaker. Mm-hmm. Or... Now it probably... W- like, the way that Oscar considers movies now, it could have been, like, a screenplay contender, but sure. not in 99. But, like, movies like Enduring Love or The Weeknd or even My Cousin Rachel were so off of the map that nobody ever really seriously considered them. I guess maybe My Cousin Rachel had, like, a little Costume. bit of a... Yeah, or, like, Rachel Weiss or something like that. Um, and then, of course, I saw Blackbird, which is his latest, which was in Toronto this year. But, like, even playing the Toronto Film Festival, I would really, really have to be, like, crossing my fingers behind my back to try and sell somebody that Blackbird is a movie that has Oscar buzz. Because it just doesn't. It's a small yeah. family dramedy. It's really good. It I will didn't say get good enough reviews. Right. It's going to probably get released, I would say, probably sometime next year. When it does, I would say... Go see it. It's um, Susan Sarandon plays a mother uh, of a mother of two who has ALS, and the family. I think this is not spoilery to say. I think this is sort of this the concept of the film that the family has decided to come together for like one last big weekend before. Um, and this movie is not called Low Weekend. No, right, exactly. No, because that would maybe imply a little bit too much frivolity. Um, but she wants the family to come together for one last sort of great family time together before then she makes the choice to end her life. And it's Kate Winslet plays her sort of buttoned-up daughter, and Mia Wasikowska plays her more kind of troubled daughter and Lindsay Duncan, speaking of the weekend, um, plays her like lifelong best friend and Samuel is her husband. And it's just a really, really well done sort of warm, but um, a little spiky family dramedy. It made me think of of Rachel getting married a couple times, which like, it's not as good as Rachel getting married, but like just to make me think of that movie a couple times is a victory in and of itself. I feel like, Mm -hmm. so I know a lot of people have their Susan Sarandon issues and like whatever, but like if you can get past it, go see this movie. And I think it's great. I think it like, it's one of the, one of the ones from TIFF this year that I most think fondly of because it was the closest I came to like digging out a discovery this year. So Mm. anyway, good on Roger Michelle, not good on Roger Michelle for morning glory. But as I mentioned, this doesn't feel like a, um, a Roger Michelle movie in the way that like the weekend does, or does it feel like the rain on your skin? (laughs) No one else can feel it for you.
All right, is, is it time to get into the Natasha Bedingfield of it all? It is maybe time to talk about Natasha Bedingfield. She did, did, does the song? I think. Is it an original song for this film or is it a? Absolutely not. Though I think Strip Me, when it played in the trailer, I think it, that was like months before the song came out. Yes. Because I was like, out, what is this song? The song came out like the week before the movie was released in theaters. Yeah. So it's like... It's the uh, quintessential Natasha Bedingfield movie trailer song. Like, it's... If you think of Natasha Bedingfield as a genre unto its unto herself, which you really should, because... It, she sort of self-defines in a way that I find very interesting. Like, maybe you can rope in... She's, like, a peppier version. She's the peppier version, and then, like, Christina Perry is the somber she's version. She's less insufferable Colby Calais. Okay, all right, let's... Colby Calais was, like, very chill and, like, laid back feeling all of the songs sound the same but natasha bedingfield wants you to feel so goddamn good about yourself walking to work in the morning right um so okay so kobe calais kobe calais is like self-consciously like spacey artsy right natasha bedingfield is peppy walking to work kt tunstall is like peppy walk of shame maybe maybe like Peppy Hangover. All right, let's do that. Yes, Peppy Hangover. Peppy Hangover. Welcome to the Peppy stage. Hangover. That's Please a great drag name. Peppy Hangover. <laughs> and then, um, wait, who was the one? Oh yeah, so Christina Perry is like after a breakup. Uh, Natasha Bedingfield, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Walking home in the rain. And so you put yeah. them all together, and it is a Voltron of movie trailer music that I find irresistible. So Natasha Bedingfield truly has given us. I will say this, a lot better musicians have done a lot worse for, like, have have impacted pop culture less than Natasha Bedingfield in that she has at least three films or TV shows that she has put her indelible stamp on, where it's Morning Glory slash all movie, cre- uh, all movie trailers with, um, wait, what is the song title here? Uh, I mean, strip me. Uh, strip me. Unwritten was used a lot. Used a lot. Strip me was used first with Morning Glory, and then it's since been used in like TV shows and, everything. and other things. Well, Unwritten like, is the hills. Unwritten like defines the hills, right? So like that's yeah an entire generation of people who like have been Im- like implanted with the Natasha Bedingfield gene, and then Pocketful of Sunshine is so to me like un like you cannot separate it from Easy A. I got it. I got it. Right. That it like it's so definitional. So I mean, like Lana Del Rey can't fucking do that. Like sorry. Lana Del Rey has Xavier Dolan, which is like yeah. if we're if we're extending this whole like brands of things. But yeah, like Natasha Bedingfield is like this immediately recognizable feel good brand that if you attach it onto a like commercial for some type of uh, cl- home cleansing product 
or uh, you know vacation destination mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or movie trailer. It's all about feeling good about yourself, feeling powerful as your hair blows through the wind. It's exactly right. Feeling the rain on your face. Exactly right. It's walking down a sidewalk. It's feeling confident about your ability to do whatever you have to do when you get to the end of that sidewalk. Perhaps you have a caffeinated beverage in your hand, but you're not spilling it on Perhaps the the cross light has turned to yellow and you have to hustle to make it across. You might have to extend a hand to like a cab. Yeah, wait, wait, one second. I'm walking. One second, sir. Don't run me over. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes. I think we're both picturing the exact same frame of film. I mean, you're you're in a very very because this is also fall. It takes place during fall. Of course, you're also having a very chic trench coat with a hat that doesn't quite perfect. Right. It's not like a matching print, but like it's a it's a beautiful. And there's a little bit of tension in the people watching you that that hat's going to blow off. But you know, you have the confidence Mm -hmm. of Natasha Bedingfield in your internal monologue uh, Mm -hmm. that is keeping that hat firmly in place. And then you have, like, a small half second where you just, like, stop and smile when you've made it to your destination and you open the door and the song stops. Exactly. The song stops because you run into somebody you know and you have to, like, hit the ground running and start, like, Hottie McHot-Hot Patrick Wilson, probably. Exactly. All right. Is there enough Patrick Wilson in this movie for you? Uh, no. The only movie that there is enough Patrick Wilson it. for me is Little Children. Of yes. Because there's a lot of Patrick Wilson in there's it. There's a lot of Patrick Wilson in that movie. I I do like Patrick Wilson. Listen, nobody who was in the HBO Angels in America, the Mike Nichols Angels in America, is ever going to not be a fave of mine. He's got me forever. Um, I do, as I mentioned before. I feel before, like in the objectification of Patrick Wilson, though, like he. It <laughs> the kind objectification of, him of Patrick the... Wilson also was a great movie. Like you, yeah, that's the title of my memoir. <laughs> um, uh, the object, like he became kind of like this haughty object in movies, mm-hmm. and the roles kept getting smaller and smaller as he became like the boyfriend. Right. Um, but I actually think he's a really good actor. I wish I that too. he got some better roles. Like he's. He's actually brilliant in um, Little Children. Is that? Do we feel like that's the closest he's ever come to like an actual Oscar nomination? He's never really come close at all. Ever. Oh, probably. I mean, he hasn't had the roles to get it. No, that's too bad. I wonder what kind like of Patrick thing, Wilson. What kind of thing? Like, does he just have to get like old enough to feel like? I don't know, a little bit. Because the thing is, like, you don't get Oscar nominations for supportive husbands. Like, ask... I'm trying to think of, like, the last, like, supportive husband role that, like, really got Oscar nominated. It doesn't happen. Mm. It just doesn't happen. Um, So I'm wondering, like, what he would end up having to do to get that nomination. Maybe it's just, like, not in the cards for him. Maybe he's just to... maybe, (laughs) Maybe his looks are his own reward. Because he's, he's been gonna in, have to. It'll happen in like twenty years when it's some type of. I don't I'll know. tell you what the closest he's ever come to Oscar buzz is. Is I guarantee you he was on certain charts for for Phantom, Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. 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 Yep. And he is bad. Free her. Do what you like. Only free her. Have you no pity? Your lover makes a passionate plea. He's well, it's useless. I love her. Does that mean nothing? I love her. 
show some compassion? The world showed no compassion to me! It's the most thankless role, too. Of course it is. He's Raul. Like, nobody likes that character. Everybody God, would... If we ever do exceptions, we just have to stamp it down that we have to talk Phantom. I know oh, we've thrown we're a going lot of to. movies out there, but we're Phantom would, I think, be the one. What a great, like, era for him. <laughs> but, like, great in, like, scare quotes. But, like, he goes from... Angels in America to the Alamo, which also had a ton of Oscar buzz, but I don't know if it ever like landed on him. Phantom of the Opera, and then Hard Candy, which like is a really that's sort of a controversial movie because it really mm-hmm. like asks you to um play into torture as a righteous device. But like yeah. um it's a really interesting movie where he's the pedophile who gets what's coming to him from uh from Ellen Page and then Little Children. It does, but like in um, Hard Candy, though, it's like the exactly the type of role I kind of not, not specifically a pedophile, but it's exactly the role I want to see him doing because it really subverts his yes. looks in a really conscious way as him as a performer that I think is really he is really smart about. Your ideal Patrick Wilson is a scumbag. What he did in that episode of Girls, yes, right. Like, Lena Dunham really, like, captured what you want to be captured from Patrick Wilson. Do we want to talk about Eileen Brosh McKenna? I very I much kind do. of like to. I feel like we as a culture have not given her her things. She, we owe so much to her in terms of just, like, the romantic comedy genre. These, uh, it's, some of them are not good movies, but, like, a she's lot of still them making them when, That's the thing. when, like, these movies are dying. Um, it starts with Three to Tango. She also wrote Laws of Attraction, Wait, let's, which let's is Wait, let's not move past Three to Tango so quickly, though, because, as okay. you mentioned on this podcast, it was during an IMDb game, right? It was yes. Nev Campbell's IMDb game? I believe so. Um, or, no, it was one of our Entertainment Weekly guests the top Band. Oh right, and you were right, like, right, she's right, on right. this for this movie that was like controversial at the time, which like I never knew the plot. It of would be more controversial go. today. I remember kind of liking it for what it is, um, or really liking it for what it was. Love triangle say. of the the most nineteen ninety nine love triangle of Nev Campbell, Matthew Perry, and Dylan McDermott. Matthew Perry is pretending to be gay to get a job because his business partner is also gay. And then he ends up getting close to his uh, Dylan McDermott's girlfriend and like falling in love with her. But she thinks he's gay. So he has to keep pretending that he's gay. Right. And it's probably so laws of attraction. The next one is Julianne Moore. It's one of the remember that there was the thing for a while that like Julianne Moore can't do comedy. Which is absurd. Which I mean, is like absurd. that's a, it's a bad movie. But, but this was one of those I movies mean, that I people pointed to. It was like this and Evolution, mm-hmm. and it was like Julianne Moore can't do comedy, and it's just like maybe she can't do bad comedy. Like maybe that. However, Francis Fisher is wonderful. <laughs> Lots of attraction playing Julianne Moore's mom, which is insane. But like she's super horny and gets a bunch <laughs> of plastic surgery but it's like it's maybe an offensive portraiture but Francis Fisher's having a good ass time. All right, you it. talk about the one after Laws of Attraction and I'll talk about the one after that. Uh the one after are we counting this TV movie Drive that I have no idea what it no, is? I assume not. We are not. Um well the one after that is Devil Wears Prada. Um, which I definitely think she did not get enough credit for that movie doing so well, certainly at the time. She did, um, I will say, credit to BAFTA for giving her a adapted screenplay nomination. And the Academy absolutely should have done the same. I think if if the Oscars 
if we were allowed to to do the 2006 Oscars again, she definitely would. I think that movie. I has... think the 2006 Oscars would look enti- like almost entirely different. Yeah, I think if that's we true. were able to do them. Again. But I think that's one of the big ones is that like the Devil Wears Prada has attained the level of respect now that it deserved to have back then. Yeah. Her next movie after Devil Wears Prada is a movie that I often stick up for when people try to shoot down the romantic comedy genre. Uh, it is 27 Dresses, starring Katherine Heigl, the much maligned Katherine Heigl, who I also often stick up for. I think that is a thoroughly charming, really cute movie. It's a If it's on cable on a weekend, I will absolutely watch it. Katherine Heigl and James Marsden have fantastic chemistry together. It's a really, like, it's a very relatable movie for anybody who has ever, like, been to, you know, a bunch of friends' weddings before their own, you know, relationship ever got started, right? So you have the sense of just, like, it's happening for everybody and it's never going to happen for me. And it's so... I don't know. It's so charming. And it's so... And it was so um, sort of shat upon when it came out because of its concept. Because because it had... I swear to God, it's because it had dresses in the title so that it gave everybody the excuse to just be like, it's about, you know, external stuff and it's materialism and yada yada and, like, refused to look past it. And then it was Katherine Heigl who, like, everybody right, had permission to, to hate about. right exactly and nobody gave that movie even a shot and i will say i love that movie i think it's so good i need to actually see it um but yes it also has judy greer right yeah Doesn't one she of, have a, one of, one of the, the great, more significant roles that people love her for? one of the great judy greer best friend that's like one of the like most definitional when you talk about like judy greer is always playing the best friend that is it that is what people are talking about Next was Morning Glory and um, Fairly Maligned. I don't know how she does it, but again, that's another movie where it's like the lead actress or somebody that people just want to hate, so we should be more fair to that movie. I have a little bit of a soft spot for I Don't Know How She Does It because that was the movie that Busy Phillips was making when I met her, so that was (laughs) funny and cute. The one after that is one I never really knew. I had no idea that she co-wrote We Bought a Zoo with Cameron Crowe. This is when the romantic comedies stop for a minute. <laughs> yeah. We bought a zoo and then she did the Annie remake. But then coming off of like the heels of that and less, the less said about the Covangene Wallace version of Annie, the better. She then co-creates Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with Rachel Bloom. And it is, if you've never watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, like I'm not going to sell it, you want it now. Like you've had your chance. Like you're either going to watch it or you don't watch it. But it is one of my favorite television shows of the last decade. It's so... I think it's one of my favorite television shows of my lifetime. Yeah. I will say. It's so um, I'll be the one to sell you on it, listeners. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible show that, like, I... It, you've mentioned sometimes where it's like, you feel like your certain, like, circles or niche of the internet makes you have things that you think are more widely seen right. or assessed than they actually are and crazy ex-girlfriend is definitely that for me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but like all the episodes are available now on netflix it is a like really brilliant subversion of the romantic comedy drama or the romantic comedy um like concept and how those things work yeah it's also like one of i think the best and funniest um and just like really like spot on 
examinations of mental health that I think makes it really essential and everybody should try to watch it. It's also the partnership between uh, Aline Brush McKenna and Rachel Bloom is so lovely to me. And I know when I saw the um, the tour after the finale this spring, they did the tour. So and they jealous. came to Radio City Music Hall and all of the cast was there and they're performing all their songs. And there is Aline Brush McKenna, who yeah, really was not a performer on the show and was not a songwriter on the show. Like, the songs were written by Rachel Bloom and her songwriting partners and whatever. And really, she didn't have to be on this tour. She could have been working on whatever, like, I'm sure whatever her next project is is going to be pretty important to her career. And But she was at this tour stop with the cast and on stage dancing in the ensemble numbers and just having a fantastic time. And you could just tell what a special experience that show was for those people that they all wanted to sort of like be there and be around each other and if i ever hear to the contrary i will promise to never ever tell because yeah, i bury want, that in the ground i want to keep the fantasy that i have in my head that everybody on crazy ex-girlfriend really truly loves each other and yeah i mean i love it i think it's one of the one of the great shows so Ultimately, I'm excited to see what Aline Brush McKenna has to do next. I think she's an incredible talent, and I think when she is given the space to let that talent shine through, you know what I mean? It's it's interesting yeah. that somebody for a filmography as spotty and as, you know, somewhat, you know, spotted with failures as hers is, I just I have no end of my optimism for her for her career. It's certainly hard to ascribe those failures to her specifically. Yeah, and I think a lot of those movies were, you know, co-written with other people. I think only 27 We've talked dresses. a lot about like journeyman um like people within the industry that it's like they just do a lot of work and they are just good at their jobs and they have like a lot of output and I think she's one of them and I I I, she's someone that I would like to see get the respect they deserve. Agreed. Agreed. So, yeah. Any final things you want to talk about with Morning Glory? We do have, for the, I think, the first episode in a hot minute, we have an AARP movie for Grown Up nominee. Shout it out. Love it. Diane Keaton, supporting actress for the AARP Movie for Grown Ups Award. It's, Surprisingly, nothing else, though. It, You'd think they would go for Harrison Ford. And that feels like a reputation uh, nomination more than anything, which is because we've talked about how Keaton doesn't really get a ton to do in this movie, but like I can also see Diane Keaton just be you know a name that shows up on the ballot for AARP Movies for Grown Ups voters and people being like, yes, whatever it is, yes, we will, we will, we will approve of this. Keep looking out for that Palms nomination this year. Can I just read to you the box office top ten the weekend that Morning Glory premiered? Morning Glory. Oh, I looked it up and it's infuriating, it's but terrifying. And I like, and this is in 2010, which I think is a really good year for movies. Like I think 2010 top to bottom, you look at movies that were released that especially year, especially fall movies. Especially so, yes. And I think the problem was is that this movie was released just before Harry Potter part seven part one right deathly hallows part mm -hmm. one right yeah so people were just kind of dumping things a little bit. i think people were not looking to open up the weekend before that and just have their second weekend be decimated by harry potter right so okay but like morning glory would have been smart 
counter-programming, mm. so I'm surprised that it didn't do as well as it did, but get into that. Yeah, so Morning Glory opens fifth for the weekend. Of the movies that are debuting that weekend, it's third behind Unstoppable, which is the movie that I probably saw in theaters, which was the um, Runaway Train movie starring Denzel Washington and Chris Pine. It was the Tony Scott It got movie. a sound nomination, It did. Correct? Was that Tony Scott's last movie? I think so, or second to last. Yeah. Um, so Unstoppable finished second that weekend to the second weekend of Megamind, a movie I've still not seen. I saw that in theaters. It was basically entirely forgettable. It has no uh, pop culture um, resonance whatsoever. Third that weekend was Due Date, a movie I have still not seen, which was Robert, I will never see. Robert Downey Jr.'s at Galifianakis road trip to... Uh, it was like planes, trains, and automobiles, but my wife is giving birth kind of a thing. And also in hell. Wait, really? No, oh. I mean, it's just like, you are in hell. Oh, I was, if, if you had said that that I'm was sure the twist at the end of Due Date, I would have been like, yeah, probably. Um, Remember, Due Date even had people a little bit like, well, maybe for Zach Galifianakis, this could be a Globe nominee. And I was like, please, that was, please, that- send me on a sh- shuttle to hell i don't mind zach galifianakis but i i feel your frustration there for sure all right um fourth that weekend was skyline a movie i may or may not have seen and i don't remember that was one of those Uh, i remember that movie and that was maybe one of the few because this was like early twitter days or at least early for me and that was one of the few that like you just saw everywhere on twitter of people saying how absolutely terrible that movie was and how it looked like it was shot for five dollars and the visual effects were terrible was this the movie where like the people lived in the high-rise apartment building and the aliens came and sucked all the people with up eric balfour yeah and then there's morning glory was fifth and then the rest of the top 10 is second weekend of for colored girls the fifth weekend of red the third weekend of paranormal activity 2 saw 3d jackass 3d like it is truly a top 10 that i've seen two of the movies perhaps three even even yeah still. you it's almost like with the exception of morning glory it feels like it's a january or february top 10 yeah weird 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 opening weekend so that morning glory wasn't yeah. able to succeed in that weekend is almost more damnable because like there's so much detritus mm-hmm. around it and yet also maybe just everything was d- like destined to fall into a sinkhole that weekend who knows who knows All right. morning glory i th- i mean like i don't know how much i would defend this movie but it definitely deserves better I think a little better. I want to go through my my notes really quickly and make sure I didn't miss anything. One is one of the notes that I have is <laughs> I just wrote IBS. Are you kidding? Um, the network. Yes, the station is IBS. People, people, stop it! Stop it! Don't don't name your fakey fake networks something that is clearly an acronym for uh, gastrointestinal distress. The other note that I have that I haven't mentioned yet is that scene where she has to retrieve Mike Pomeroy from his bender, where he and Chris Matthews and Morley Safer and Bob Schieffer are all, like, carousing at this. Like, she goes to Elaine's and they're not at Elaine's, and she goes to, like, all these other, like, uh, you know, sort of late-night pub kind of establishments. She finds them all, and they're all having this, like, very self-consciously 
uh, boys club conversations about like, are you, you know, you screw in your, your new EP and like this whole kind of thing. And it's all very much, it's awful. It's, but it's, it's done in a way where it's just like, we get the fact, we get that the movie is aware of this, that this is bad and that all these people making the cameos are aware of it and that they're sending up this idea of the boys club and like, fine, good for all of you, I guess, except that like, I don't know how much I trust like Chris Matthews and like, I mean, whatever, Bob Schieffer seems like a good guy and like Morley Safer was very old when he made this movie, but like I, I no longer trust that strata of old white men in in television television news to have the spotless records required to do that send up do you know what i mean i mean like it's a little bit frustrating because like it feels like the movie wants to go there and like maybe in eileen brush mckenna's research she did like have people talking about those type of things it like it feels like it wants to go there but it doesn't Uh uh-huh i agree with you it's too bad some of my other notes, I literally wrote, um, aside from being the most Natasha Bedingfield movie ever, it is the most Paolo Nutini movie ever. Okay, that, okay, so Paolo Nutini is, is the, Paolo Nutini is the kind of uh, photo negative of Natasha Bedingfield in that he only has the one song, but it, and rather than that song defining one movie. He has like three songs. Does he? New Shoes, Jenny Don't Be Hasty, and Last Request. I do not. I have never stopped listening to those songs. I do not recognize the validity of those other two quote songs that you've mentioned. I will send them to you. I will say that New Shoes shows up in every third romantic comedy from the years 2006 to 2010. And it is, so it does not define any one movie. It is also in a bajillion movie trailers, one of which I'm pretty sure is the Jane Austen Book Club. And every time I hear it, I'm like, yep, I know what year this was. Like, this, or at least I know, like, yep. the range of what years this was. So, like, okay, good good on you, I suppose. The movie also makes fun of Seabiscuit at one point, which, <laughs> of course, is going to endear me to cool it. Among us. Rachel McAdams calls 50 Cent Mr. Cent. She does. She's like, yes, we get it. She is a white lady. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I feel like... This movie could have used maybe, you know, leaned on the cameo thing more heavily for better or for worse, and it doesn't. Yeah. So, fine. That's fine. It's a fun movie. It could be a lot better, but I am not going to begrudge this movie. I I want it to be the movie that I that exists in my head for it, and it it never will be, but I will probably keep going back and and watching it anyway with the expectations that it will be so in an oscar year where the best picture lineup and the least like the most uplifting movie includes holocaust imagery it's like you can see why it was not anywhere near oscar this year it was no the king's speech we will say that so yeah 2010 was a really good oscar year and this movie did not have a chance in hell of being there so We'll put the put the nails in the coffin of Morning Glory. Do you want to move on to the IMDb game? 
I would love to move on to the IMDb game. Would you like to guess or give? Well, first? why don't you tell the children what we are talking about I when we talk about this. the IMDb I game? I always fall into this trap. <laughs> so every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of these titles are television or voiceover work, we will mention that up front. But after two wrong guesses, we will get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that is not enough just becomes a free-for-all of hints. I love it. So as to your previous question, whether I would like to guess first or give first, I will guess first. Okay, so you hinted at Eileen Brosh McKenna's uh, upcoming career. The only thing that is on IMDb that she is credited for is she will be writing the Cruella movie uh-huh. starring Emma Stone. Have we not done Emma Stone? We haven't done Emma Stone. Joseph... Uh-huh. Your IMDb game challenge this week is Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Okay. All right. I like this. La La Land. Her Oscar win. La La Land. Correct. Easy A. Easy A. Looping it back to Natasha Bedingfield. Well done. We keep it all tight. That's the reason why I chose this. All right. Now we go. There's a lot of possibilities for Emma Stone. There is. I'm going to guess Birdman. No, okay. no Birdman. All right, no Birdman. So we have her other sort of like, well, the favorite is recent. The favorite. The favorite. It's breaking the recency curse. Okay. Didn't, um, didn't, uh, we did Vigo Mortensen. Didn't Green Book show up there? No. No, I don't think it had been, it was there Something. Yet. I wonder if we're hitting the point where 2018 movies can. Show Very up. possible. So, so you got one, one more, more. You only have one I have wrong. One guess. wrong guess. <sighs> I'm trying to think of something that's more mainstreamy than Crazy Stupid Love. Um, uh huh. Because I don't think it's Battle of the Sexes. Zombieland. No. So you got Shit. two wrong guesses. It's going to be 2011. 2011 crazy stupid love no what year was that uh hold on i'm looking up her i'm looking her up on box office mojo because i will say this is it's not her highest grossing movie i know that off the top of my head but it's one of them okay i think this tripped you up on a previous imdb game and that like maybe we're just trying to forget that this movie exists (laughs) um yeah, it is the same. Uh, it is the same year as Crazy Stupid Love. It is the same season as Crazy Stupid Love. Okay. It Action is... blockbuster? No, absolutely not. It's her. her <laughs> it's her third highest grossing film. Okay. The first two being Spider's Man. Oh right, Spider's forgot Man. those. <laughs> oh, everybody fully wants to fucking forget those movies. Yeah, okay. Um, so after The Spider's Men, it is a not, uh, a decidedly not action blockbuster, which makes me feel like it's a comedy? No. It is also maybe the only time that when she's had an Oscar movie, she was not in the conversation whatsoever. Oh, of course. Of course, it's the help. It's the help. 
The Help might be another one of those movies that's on that everybody in the cast has it on their IMDb. I yeah, we talked about that in our mailbag. I wouldn't be well, it's not on Bryce Dallas Howard. She only has, <laughs> she made sure of that. She only has not a full lineup. I think she only has Jurassic World or something. Oh my um, god, I forget. Well, that's why it might truly be on like all of the main casts. Interesting. So, right. who do you have for me? So, I also went the uh, Aline Brosh McKenna tip. And we mentioned, I sort of went on at length about my love for 27 Dresses and my frequent defenses of its main actress, Katherine Heigl. I'm going to ask you to name the known four for Katherine Heigl, one of which is television. Uh, so that's Grey's Anatomy. It sure is. Um, is 27 Dresses one of them? It is not. Oh. One straight. Okay. Um, knocked Up. Yes, correct. Um... What was the Josh Duhamel movie, Life as We Know It? That is the title of the movie, but it is not one of her known for. So Dang. that's two strikes. So your missing oh, years quick. are 2009 and 2012. I don't think that's going to help me. Um, huh. But, okay, so 2009 still would have been, like, peak Katherine Heigl. Or at right. least, like, when she was doing movies more regularly. Right. Mm. And I'm guessing that it is after... That's probably after 27 Dresses. I'm sure it's after Knocked Up. Is it... It's the same year as 27 Dresses. Can no, it's the next year. Was it's that the next movie year. called Killers with Ashton Kutcher? That was the title of that movie, but that's not... Damn, I know all of the Katherine Heigl movies. Killers was 20. I just can't guess the right one. Um, mm, is it The Ugly Truth? It the, is The Ugly that Truth. That one that people thought was really offensive that I didn't yep. see, because I do not do Jared Butler. Yep. Um, the Ugly Truth. All right, so now... What's it going to be? You know what it should be? What? It should be Unforgettable. <laughs> Oh my god. The one Unforgettable with her, is so much Dawson. fun. And she's actually like Catherine Heigl knows exactly what that movie is and she's a yeah. lot of fun. Um uh, and then like Rosario Dawson is giving full Meryl Streep in that movie. Yeah. Um uh, Is this the lesbian wedding movie? Jenny's Wedding, it is not. I uh, see the one I do not know the title for. Jenny's Wedding was 2015. This is earlier than that. I will say, wasn't there? This... No, there's another wedding movie. There's like the, the wedding movie that has Robert De Niro and um, yes. Susan Sarandon. Is it that? It is not. That is called The Big Wedding. It is also not that. That was 2013. I will say the one in 2012 was like the last nail in the coffin of Catherine Heigl, leading lady in films. Okay. I don't know if that's going to help me. It was based on a very popular series of novels. Mm? <gasps> uh, mm? Do you remember the title of it? No, but she she's a brunette in this movie. Yes, she is. And those books are written by... What's her name? That, like, they're probably ghostwritten now, and, like, all of the women of my family have read these books... If you ever worked in a public library, these books would fly off of the shelves of the mystery genre. Oh, God. It's a... Janet Ivanovich. Janet Ivanovich is the author, yes. Okay. What's the name of this movie? <laughs> um, 
It's they one changed of those... the title, right? Did they change the title because it's the book series? It's all numbers are in the title to tell you what. I was just about to bring that up. So mystery, mystery, the mystery genre is known for having titles that are very scalable so that you would have like the Sue Grafton novels where like A is for alibi, B is is for whatever. And this one, you're right, that numbers was the, uh, so what would have been the first number? Something, something one. Or one. Ready player one. (laughs) It's ready player one, right? No, Um, it's one. One is the first word, not the last word. One... Oh boy, um, it's sort of a phrase. It's like uh, it's a phrase that would include. A oh phrase, wait, a, the the second one is like the second part. It's one yeah, for the money. It is one for the money. God damn it! One for the money, where she plays Stephanie Plum, a very, very, very popular series of novels that turned into an incredibly uh, unpopular, ill-received movie. film. That yeah, that was the end of it for Catherine Heigl. Ugh. Well done, though. I think that's a tough one. I think I gave you... That's probably the toughest one you've had in a while. So, good job, Chris. And I gave you an easy one. With I know. an easy A. Ah! Well That is our episode. Well done, Chris. That's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, listeners, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Um, uh, floating through Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L on Letterboxd under the same name and writing regularly for the film experience. Woohoo! Yes, I am on Twitter as well at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed is spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with visibility on Apple Podcasts. So finish open mouth kissing that frog and write something sweet about us, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz.